This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Welcome, everybody. Uh, in this setting especially, it feels appropriate to quote Father Thomas Keating, uh, who is the primary uh, popularizer of Centering Prayer, uh, Christian contemplative practice. And I heard Father Keating, who for me is definitely the real deal, uh, once say that a life without a contemplative perspective is a sure prescription for a disaster. So uh, it seems like this is an auspicious setting in which to uh, quote Father Keating. Uh, so welcome back from the meditation. And I don't know, in the back there, for some reason this uh, slide clicker will not advance the slides. So I don't know if there's something funny about it. It worked before. Great. Is there a switch? Turn the power on? You know. What's that? Who knew? All right. So let's dive in, okay? Um, I want to, again, express my own gratitude for Charlotte Catherine, as well as Insight Meditation South Bay for having me here. And uh, for those of you that are regular participant in their gatherings, um, you know, I, how can I put it? I'm happy for you. Uh, it's one of the divine abodes in Buddhism, happy for the happiness of good fortune of others. And for those of you that for whom perhaps this is your first time uh, of contact with uh, Insight Meditation South Bay, uh, you know, you might want to keep coming back. Who knows? could be good for you, those around you as well. Okay, so this is what I hope to explore with you today, this fundamental idea about how do we grow good stuff inside ourselves that takes into account what scientists call experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Uh, my own background is that uh, I kind of came up through the human potential movement, the wild and woolly stuff. At some point, I realized I better get it in, you know, some kind of degree or license uh, to make a living or so forth. So then I went back to graduate school. I went into psychology. and But along the way, actually, I encountered contemplative practice in 1974. That's when I first started meditating. For me, it was very romantic. I had long hair and gold rimmed glasses and a wood flute. You know, I thought it would get me girls and didn't, but anyway. Um, and, you know, it seemed like, wow, this is pretty neat stuff. So that was kind of my own journey. And then starting around 10, 20 years ago, I got very interested in brain science because, um, as we'll see later, the Buddha engaged the causes of suffering and the causes of happiness, or as he put it, that highest happiness, which is peace. He engaged those causes in terms of the mind, what flows through uh, conscious experience in particular. But increasingly now, 2,500 years later, as we've learned more and more about the black box, as it were, uh, between the ears, the ultimate dark continent, uh, we're more and more able to understand what could be the underlying neurobiological, uh, physical causes of those mental causes of suffering in its end. So if you think about the intersection of psychology, uh, neuroscience, and contemplative practice, where those three circles intersect, there's a lot of good stuff at the meeting of those three. You get uh, useful validity checks on the perspectives of each other and a lot of skillful means. So that's what I hope to explore with you tonight. It'll be kind of a zip through a fair amount of material. Uh, and as I said, we'll end real close to 9 o'clock. So these are the topics I hope to get through. First, a frame, neurodharma, the basic idea of the intersection of Buddhist contemplative practice especially and modern neuropsychology. And then I want to explore with you the second and third noble truths 
which for me are really in many ways the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Number one, the, second, the first truth, as you probably know, is the truth that there is suffering from subtle to intense. It's not that life is only suffering. It's that life has a fair amount of suffering in it. Second, the truth of the cause of that suffering, which in the Buddhist frame is seen as fundamentally uh, craving, whose root in the uh, meaning in the language of early Buddhism is thirst, a kind of a drive based on a sense of deficit or disturbance that leads to suffering. That's the noble truth of craving, the cause of suffering. And then the third noble truth is this wonderful possibility that we can bring the causes of suffering to an end and thus suffering itself. The question is, of course, from the standpoint of evolutionary neuropsychology, how in the world can you actually do that with a brain uh, that evolved in many ways to crave and to suffer in order to survive and pass on genes that pass on genes? That's the challenge there. So I want to explore that with you in the second bullet point topic, craving in its end. And then that'll be a segue into how do we gradually internalize the felt sense of core needs being met to gradually undo the underlying sense of deficit and disturbance that drives the craving, that drives the suffering, right? And also, how do we turn passing experiences into lasting inner strikes of various kinds, including resilience, happiness, loving kindness, mindfulness, moral commitments, etc., etc.? How do we actually do that, given a brain which, as we will see, has what scientists call a negativity bias? Or as I put it, it's like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. And then that'll take us to the final topic uh, with some recognition of um, how the brain evolved and our three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. Um, there's a way to start using the ends of a good life, being a deep sense of peace, contentment, and love, as the means to the good life. Because as we have these experiences, broadly defined as peace, contentment, and love, and really internalize them, really weave them into the fabric of the brain and the self, then gradually um, the underlying energy behind or fuel behind craving and therefore suffering falls away. So that's the kind of overview, all right? It's ambitious, but whatever. This is the stuff. Got to go for it. Okay, so let's get into it, right? So neurodharma. I'm going to skip past this one because I didn't bring my... Uh, the, 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 the file along for the, that particular movie. But here's where I want to start with the story. <clears throat> you may have heard this story. It's in my book, Buddha's Brain. The way I heard this story is that a woman was asked toward the end of her life, a Native American woman, uh, Grandmother, how did you become so happy? How did you become so wise? How did you become so effective? Everybody observes you and wants to learn from you. How did you actually do it? She said, huh. Well, I think it's because when I was young, I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And I also realized that everything depended on which one I fed each day. Wow. You know, I told that story many times. It still gives me the shivers just to say it again. Um, two takeaways. First takeaway uh, who among us does not have the capacity, at least, for the wolf of hate? And more to our purposes, second point, it all depends on which one we're feeding each day. Right? As we'll soon see, the brain is continually changing its structure based on our experiences, for better or worse. Which wolf will we be feeding? Right? 
This goes to the fundamental question of the intersection of mind and brain and the notion that over time, we ourselves have a great power through the use of our attention and then what we do with what our attention rests upon to feed one wolf or another, one set of tendencies and capabilities in ourselves or another. And how shall we use that power? So by feeding the wolf of love or other wholesome qualities, we can grow in our strengths. We can develop, for example, classic character virtues like patience or generosity or all the stuff I memorized when I was in the Boy Scouts. Thrifty, brave, clean, reverent. There were a few others. I forget them now. Anyway, or we can develop some of the qualities that psychologists or others in the mental health field talk about, the executive functions, secure attachment, distress tolerance, self-regulation. Or, as you'll see, we can develop some of the Buddhist virtues. These are taken from the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, bliss, tranquility, uh, concentration, and equanimity. Other major inner strengths from Buddhism, such as, as I alluded to earlier, the four uh, immeasurables, the four abidings of awakened mind, which of course are available to us in general, that being compassion, kindness, and equanimity. Or um, also in Buddhism, the three pillars of practice, virtue, um, mindfulness or concentration, as well as wisdom. And then we have other things such as wise view, wise intention, wise effort, conviction, generosity, and patience. All right? These are the good things. We want these good things, including positive emotion. A lot of research has shown that um, happiness, in many ways, is skillful means. The question is, how do we grow these good things? How do we get them going? How do we actually develop them over time? And this takes us, in turn, to a fundamental framework here. Now, other than the influence of a hypothetical, transcendental X factor, God, the divine, or supernatural forces, other than that possibility, otherwise, we're inside the natural frame. This means that all the causes, other than whatever might possibly be transcendental, all the causes making this moment of consciousness, the sights we see, the sounds we hear, the thoughts, our feel, the feelings we have, our hopes, our sorrows, our sufferings, our joys, all of that must in some way be the result of underlying natural processes. Personally, I'm a transcendentalist. I think there is some kind of X factor. That said, for our purposes this evening, I'll stay inside the natural frame, inside the frame of Western science. Okay? So that's kind of a basic framework here. And then the question becomes, inside that frame, how in the world do we grow the good stuff inside ourselves? Right? Well, inside the natural frame, inner strengths, mindfulness, wisdom, happiness, resilience, uh, patience, good intentions, fortitude, moral virtues, all of that must be built out of brain structure. Okay, this is an overarching perspective. All right. This is a brain. It's the brain of a cadaver. It's no longer alive. It's about three pounds of tofu-like tissue. It doesn't look like much. 
I think of the brain as sort of this, in this image, as like a rot cauliflower. It has some of those qualities. Uh, it's not impressive at all. And yet, scientists consider it as probably the most complex physical object they curr- that's currently known. It contains about 1.1 trillion cells, roughly 10% of which are neurons. Um, and a typical neuron, 100 billion or so inside our brain, uh, a typical neuron makes about 5,000 connections with other neurons, giving us a network between our ears with about 500 trillion synapses, those little points of connection between neurons, through which signals are flowing as neurons fire on the order of 5 to 50 times a second. So even though the brain is only about 2 to 3% of body weight, it consumes about 20 to 25% of the supplies going through our, our blood, like a refrigerator, right? It's always on, humming away, ready for immediate use. All right? So in this busy brain, why did Mother Nature evolve this organ that's so metabolically active and such an expensive organ? The fundamental function of the nervous system inside the natural frame is to store, represent, communicate, and operate upon information. In a neuroscientific frame, mind, lowercase m, fundamentally boils down to information. There's nothing fancy about it, in a sense. There's nothing mystical about it. All right? So inside this natural frame, for there to be any kind of mind, any kind of mental activity, there must be some underlying neural activity to represent that information, communicate it, and operate upon it. The underlying neural basis for mind, including that very small fraction of mind that constitutes conscious experience, which we privilege because it's what we know, even though it's just a tiny fraction of the whole, for there to be any kind of mental activity, there must be underlying neural activity which appears in many, many different kinds of ways. Ebbs and flows of neurotransmitters uh, enable uh, shifts of mood or learning or uh, wakefulness. Uh, Busy regions uh, activate. Uh, In this particular slide right here, this is an image of a meditator who's inside an MRI sending boundless compassion to all beings. How many of you have ever been in an MRI? I never have myself. I feel for you. But anyway, I've heard about them now. My mom had a lot of MRIs. Um, they, uh, you know, they're claustrophobic. They're loud. They're weird. So here you are. You're a meditator. You're setting boundless compassion to all beings. you got to really concentrate, right? So this particular, let's see if I have the magic PowerPoint. Yes, that little orange blob. So this is a slice of a brain like this looking that away. And that little orange blob is in a part of the brain called the cingulate cortex, And that's a part of the brain, especially its frontal or anterior portions, that's very involved in the executive control of attention, the top-down regulation of attention. And so here's this meditator who's really concentrating, right? So he's activating the part of the brain that does that job. It's kind of like a muscle, you know? If you need to lift a weight this way, you activate the bicep. If you push a weight away that way, you activate the tricep, I guess. But anyway, so this particular part of the brain, mental activity, entails underlying neural activity. Right? And by the way, the words at the top there are recurring words um, in uh, the early teachings of the Buddha that describe a sincere practitioner. I kind of like them. Ardent, 
diligent, resolute, and mindful. I figure if you know I've got some or all of those four words going, you know it's probably got to be in a good, pretty good place. Okay. So so far, what I've talked about here is just temporary. Right. The temporary correlating, correlating between mental and neural activity. Right. But what about more lasting effects? If you think about it, repeated patterns of mental activity entail repeated patterns of neural activity. And repeated patterns of neural activity build neural structure. They do so in lots of ways. For example, London taxicab drivers, a well-known study, at the end of their training, in which they have to memorize the spaghetti snarl streets in London, uh, where a single street will like, change its name about four times as you walk down it. I've been there. Um, at the end of their training, a part of their brain called the hippocampus that's very involved in making visual spatial memories is measurably thicker. It's developed structure. It's grown structure because it was busy. It had it worked. Right? Uh, in this slide, oh, actually the next one, this saying is from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb, who has this famous saying from his work, you may have heard it, neurons that fire together wire together. So for an illustration of that, this is a slide from a study out of Harvard from Sarah Lazar and colleagues in which he compared long-term mindfulness meditators to matched controls. This was not a longitudinal study. There's no money for a 30-year study of meditators, right? Also, how do you randomly assign people to the meditation and the non-meditation group? Anyway, what Lazar found and her colleagues was that the brains of meditators were measurably thicker in terms of the cortex, the outer layer of the brain. The root of the word cortex, by the way, is bark, sort of the outer surface of the brain, um, generally speaking. Anyway, she found that in three key regions, the meditators had built neural structure in their brains compared to the control group. The three regions were, number one, the insula, on the inside of the temporal lobes, a part of the brain that's involved in interoception, tuning into oneself, uh, tracking the sensations of breathing. If right now you take a breath and you notice that it's a little cool going in and a little warm going out, that's you're engaging your insula. Or if you develop awareness in general, what am, what's going on with me, tuning in especially to your deeper feelings, your gut feelings, or uh, tuning into the emotions of other people. Actually, different studies have shown that as people tune more and more into their bodies, they build structure in the insula. And in proportion to that, they become more aware of themselves, and they also become better at tuning into the emotions of other people. They become more empathic for the feelings of others. So that's region number one. Region number two in that blobby brain that's looking this way, up there on the screen, is right behind the forehead, part of the brain that's involved in the executive control of attention and also regulating emotions and actions. Again, if you're meditating, you're not just tuning into your breathing or tuning into your body and building up structure in the insula, you're also regulating. You're regulating attention in yourself altogether. So if you frequently use that part of the brain, if if neurons there are firing together a lot, they'll start wiring together as well building structure. And then in the third part of the brain that's noted up here, top of the head, somatosensory cortex, the meditators also got a little bit of benefit there because they were repeatedly tuning into their bodies. All right? Got to tune into my throat right now. This is a big glass of of water. All right. Okay? And I'll slow down in a little bit for comments or questions. Okay. So... 
Oh, one more thing. The scatter plot on the bottom, all right? Normally we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day, ballpark. <coughs> That's a lot. But if you start with, you know, 1.1 trillion, we've usually lost a few percent by our 80th birthday or so. All right. The red square people did experience this process called normal cortical thinning due to aging. You can see that the older red square control group people had thinner cortex in these three regions than the younger controls. But the meditators, the blue circle meditators, the older meditators had just as thick tissue in these three key regions as the younger meditators. They used it so they did not lose it. And normal cortical thinning due to aging is associated with normal cognitive decline due to aging. Not Alzheimer's, not dementia, but issues with name finding or you know walking into a room to do something or get something and forgetting why you walked into that room and needing to go back to the original room to remember why did you <laughs> set out on that mission, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So and this has a lot of implications, you know. Can you believe it? We're all getting older. I mean, who knew? But anyway, you know, use it or lose it. All right. So now I want to show you this particular slide. And after another one or two, I'll slow down. So this is a fancy slide. It's kind of complex, but it really boils down to a key point. Since neurons that fire together wire together, this means that positive traits of various kinds, resilience, loving kindness, mindfulness, Happiness, positive emotion, gratitude, uh, assertiveness, willpower, commitment to sobriety, what have you. Positive traits are built from positive states that are turned into neural structure. So we have this two-stage uh, sequence from the neuropsychology of learning in which a mental state is activated, which must then be installed in neural structure. Otherwise, that positive mental state, that moment of loving kindness, that moment of insight, that moment of commitment to sobriety, that moment of gratitude, what have you, passes through the brain like water through a sieve if it doesn't turn into something of lasting value. Negative states become negative traits. Negative traits foster negative states in a vicious cycle. Positive states can become positive traits, and positive traits in turn foster positive states in a positive cycle. The question becomes, of course, how do we work this process to our own benefit and that of other people? This takes us to a fundamental opportunity that we can deliberately use our mind to both activate positive states or when positive states are happening, we can install them inside ourselves as positive traits. We can grow the good inside ourselves, much as that opening slide talked about in the very beginning. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, can fill oneself with good. Okay. So any questions or comments so far? Are you freezing? It's a little chilly in here. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll do two more slides and we'll maybe slide a little bit into a practice. So at this point, though, it's a natural question. How do we balance actively growing the good inside ourselves and in other people with the fundamental idea of just being with our experience, just witnessing it, 
just observing it. And this is where I think it's helpful to put cultivation in context. I think that there are three ways to engage the mind. Right? The first way is simply to be with what's there. We observe it. We don't try to directly change it. We may helpfully disidentify from it, step back out of the movie and try to witness it 20 rows back. We, we might try to unpack our experience, uh, perhaps sense down to what's younger, more fundamental, more vulnerable. But we're not directly trying to change our experience. I think this is the most fundamental way to engage the mind. It's foundational. It's primary. But it's not the only way to engage the mind. Someone who was as great a fan of simply witnessing the flow of experience as the Buddha also allocated most of the elements of the Noble Eightfold Path to various kinds of efforts, various kinds of direct engagement with the contents of mind to both reduce the negative, that's the second way to engage the mind, and to grow the positive. If the mind is like a garden, we can witness it, pull weeds or plant flowers. Or in six words, let be, let go, let in. All are really, really important, all right? But I personally think that the stance of simply witnessing, uh, choiceless awareness, bear witnessing, has gotten overvalued in some quarters as the, you know, the only, uh, as the essence of practice or the only way to practice. I don't think it's the only way to practice. Um, and also, over the last 2,500 years, a variety of skillful means have been developed for reducing the negative and growing the positive. Why not use them? We also need to grow resources inside ourselves. We need to cultivate inner strengths of various kinds to be able to be with our own mind. If we're not resourced inside, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone. You know, If we don't have resources inside, allies inside, Opening to experience can be like opening a trap door to hell. I think sometimes people jump too quickly, uh, even in meditative practice, into open awareness practices because they, uh, they, people haven't been sufficiently resourced, and including in terms of developing steadiness of mind, before they move into open awareness, which is a more challenging kind of contemplative practice. Even people like the monastics, who uh, are major fans, of simply witnessing the passing stream of consciousness, they too talk about cultivating uh, inner strengths of various kinds. Okay? So any comments or questions so far? Great. Yeah. And I'll repeat the question for everybody unless you bellow. So in the, the complicated slide, slide back, yeah. you talked about the positive experiences passing through if they're not installed. Yep. Yeah. Great. That's a, so. You're raising the question. I suspect most people, if not everybody, heard. Uh, thank you. And you weren't bellowing. It was. It was good. You know, you're putting it out there. Um, I'll get more into that. Can I hold that question if you don't mind? But to me, you're really getting at a very fundamental matter, which I'll be moving into momentarily. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe that's my cue to go there. So why don't we? Do this. So, got a kind of foundation, some basic ideas here. Then the question becomes, um, what causes craving and what causes the end of craving? 
And this is a big topic, uh, but I'll try to get at what I think is a fundam some fundamentally important information. So, this is a brain that evolved over 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system, resting on about 3 billion years of life altogether. As the brain evolved in these kind of three fundamental stages, brainstem, subcortex, and then cortex, that's loosely associated in this triune brain model, which is a real simplification of a lot of material, but it's kind of a useful fiction, if you will. Uh, those three stages of brain evolution are loosely associated with the reptilian, early mammalian, and then primate human stages of evolution. As the brain evolved in these three stages, so did its capacities to meet our three fundamental needs. Any animal, including a complicated animal like a human being, needs to be safe, satisfied in a broad sense, and connected, if only in a fundamental sexual act that uh, enables you know, one member of the species to lay some eggs. All right? As human beings, of course, we uh, seek safety through an overarching regulatory system in the brain that enables us to avoid harms. Uh, we uh, seek to be satisfied through an overarching system that uh, approaches rewards. And we seek connection with others through an overarching system that attaches to others. So we have this fundamental structure. This is a model that others have used and I've developed myself in which uh, we're talking here about safety, satisfaction, and connection that are managed by systems that avoid harms, approach rewards, and attach to others. You're probably aware of the fact that avoiding and approaching, you know, reducing pain, increasing pleasure are you know, foundational notions in psychology. I also think out of recognizing the profoundly uh, social nature of human beings, and recognizing what scientists call the social brain theory of evolution of the brain, especially over the last several million years, that it's really important to realize or to take a look at our need to attach to others as a system that has a meaningful independence from the other two. That attaching to others doesn't just, don't, doesn't just reduce to entirely uh, merely avoiding pain or approaching pleasure. This will be an overarching framework that I'll use. And the real test of a framework isn't so much whether it's true as whether it's useful. So I hope you'll find that this framework is kind of useful. Yeah, right there. You said a couple questions about the word. Can you elaborate? Uh-huh. The term elaborate, I think there's some psychological term there. Oh, sure. No big. A lot of information in one slide. If you think about it, imagine a really rudimentary creature like a little worm that's about a millimeter long, right? 302 neurons, okay? That little critter is avoiding harms. It'll pull back from something that's painful. It will also approach food of various kinds. Um, and then uh, it will also uh, connect with others of its species through sex, even using oxytocin, actually. These little tiny round worms use the oxytocin neurotransmitter or hormone to guide their sexual behavior. Then all that's really pretty primitive. And then on the other hand, if you think about early mammals, you know, or even a simple mammal today, like a little field mouse, say, um, or a mole, um, that, that mammal will approach rewards in more sophisticated ways that use structures that sit on top of the brainstem. 
you know, structures like the amygdala hippocampus and basal ganglia and so forth. That's what I just meant by elaborated. You know, it's kind of drawn upon. And then, then we have, of course, a human being that can avoid harms, approach rewards, and attach to others in very sophisticated ways. Okay? Great. So then the question becomes, right, what happens when we experience that our core needs are met? All right. Well, when we experience that our core needs are met, the brain defaults to its resting state, its equilibrium state in which it's not disturbed by any underlying felt sense or any compelling or uh, overwhelming felt sense of deficit or disturbance. Okay? In this resting state, the body repairs and refuels itself. It also recovers from bursts of stress. And in broad terms, when we're in this equilibrium condition, uh, the mind is colored in terms of our three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection is colored in, in an umbrella term kind of way with peace, contentment, and love. This is our homeostatic, sustainable resting state. It's our home base. It's what most characterizes us because the resting state of a dynamic system uh, most characterizes the nature of that system when it's not disturbed. In this state, there's little or no basis in deficit or disturbance for craving. This is a kind of operationalization in a foundational way of the third noble truth of Buddhism. A little graphic about this. And this fundamental point here. That mode of the brain is what I call, and other people have used the term, the responsive mode of the brain. That's our resting state. Or kind of, as I also put it, the green zone. Right? How do we get into the green zone? How do we stay in the green zone? The responsive state of the brain, if it's internalized, can encourage the development, since neurons are fired together, wired together, of increasingly responsive traits. It's where we rest increasingly, even as we face challenges, in an underlying, increasingly unconditional, because it's internalized, sense of peace, contentment, and love as the way that we meet difficulty. And then resting in responsive traits as we meet difficulties or pursue our life altogether, those responsive traits foster responsive states, which can in turn be internalized as well. And I'm going to come back to this fundamental cycle a little bit later on. This is really good news. All right. Now, alas, the bad news. All right. The second noble truth. What happens when animals, including complicated ones like us, experience that one or more of our three core needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection is not met? or is being challenged in a, in a serious way. Well, for survival purposes, what the body does is it fires up into fighting or fleeing or freezes into immobilization. Um, Long-term building projects are put on hold. Bodily systems are disturbed. And in this disturbed state, um, the mind is colored in three broad terms with fear, frustration, and heartache in terms of the avoiding, approaching, and attaching systems of the brain. 
you can see here that the Buddha referred to, in traditional terms, hatred and greed. He kind of left out heartache. Many people have wondered, you know, what was up with that. But it's also true that recent scholarship has, has made the case that the Buddha uh, taught that um, love was a wholly sufficient path to awakening. And some of his contemporaries and definitely some of the people afterward didn't you know, quite understand that, which then created the basis for the Mahayana, Tibetan, and Zen emphasis on compassion, loving kindness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that said, there's a lot in Buddhism that does include the importance of um, relational experiences as the basis for as causes of suffering, as well as a very, very important field of practice and support for practice. Um, it's said that in Buddhism there are three great jewels, uh, the teacher, the teaching, and the community of the taught. And as one of my friends and teachers, James Barris, once said in a meeting I was in at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, I was on the board there for quite a while. We have term limits, so I termed off a while ago. But anyway, he said there are three jewels, not two. And this particular jewel of relationship, the attaching system, is really, really fundamental. So in other words, I think there are four poisons, not three. Traditionally, the three poisons are hate, greed, hatred, and, heart, and uh, delusion. I think there are four poisons, greed, hatred, heartache, and delusion. But anyway, this is a kind of operationalization, operationalization in very summary terms of the second noble truth. This is your brain on craving. You know those MTV ads? This is your brain on drugs, right? The eggs frying in the pan. This is our brain on craving. Now, Mother Nature's plan is for uh, animals to be able to move back and forth between responsive and reactive states, between the green zone and the red zone. Um, her plan, in a sense that Mother Nature can be said to have a plan, not literally, obviously, that said, the plan is for animals to spend most of their time in the green zone because that's how they repair and refuel themselves, that's how they conserve resources. Right? And then uh, imagine zebras in a field, right? They're just kind of hanging out, rubbing up against each other. This example is taken from Robert Sapolsky's great book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. They're hanging out. Then the lion charges, right? They move out of the green zone into a quick spike of red zone stress that, as Sapolsky says, usually ends quickly, one way or another. <laughs> All right? And then the rest of the zebras, and even, or hopefully the zebra perhaps that escaped, although that's bad news for the lions that are hungry. Anyway, the zebras go back to the green zone. The problem is human beings, you know, with many unfortunate exceptions, uh, alas, most human beings today, most people certainly in the more developed countries of the world, are not frequently exposed to severe spikes of red zone stress running and screaming terror from a lion that's about to eat them, right? But on the other hand, uh, most of us today live lives in which we're exposed to mild to moderate chronic stress with very little time for recovery. They call it the pink zone. Or if we do go into recovery, people often go into recovery from red zone stress through doing things that aren't so good for them, like overeating, over-media-ing, drugs and alcohol, etc., etc., all right? And that's a fundamental violation of Mother Nature's plan. Okay, So here we have a little graphic for the reactive mode and a fundamental question of choices. We don't have a choice. I ask myself, what's going on in the brain of a Buddha? Or someone who's far along in practice, right? Or anybody on a good day. What's going on? We don't have a choice about the reptilian 
uh, early mammalian and primate human stages of evolution. We don't have a choice about our fundamental needs to um, avoid harms, approach rewards, and attach to others. We don't even have a choice about these two fundamental modes of operation uh, in the brain of the responsive mode or the reactive mode, the green zone or the red zone. Our choice fundamentally is which mode are we in, which wolf are we feeding every day. Or as Dr. Phil puts it in that great Dharma question, so, how's that going for you? Then on to the negativity bias. So here's the problem, though. Even though, and here there's a tension, even though Mother Nature's plan, for what it's worth, is for us to spend most of our time in the responsive mode, all right, that's a kind of resting state. Uh, It feels good to be in the green zone because it's good for us. It feels good to be peaceful, contented, and loved and loving because that's, that's good for us to be in from a standpoint of raw survival or passing on genes that pass on genes. It's bad for us to be in the red zone. It feels bad because it's bad for us. It's designed to be a temporary experience. It feels bad to be fearful or frustrated or to have heartache because those aren't good for us or passing on genes that pass on genes. It's kind of, um, you know, supposed to be a momentary experience, right? On the other hand, we're also designed to overlearn from negative experiences. And that's the basis for what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain. Basically, to stay alive for raw survival purposes, you know, that's the fundamental engine of biological evolution, the long 600 million year sculptor of our own brains, our own nervous systems altogether. From that standpoint, the brain is continually looking for threats. It's always vigilant, scanning. When it finds something that's bad news, it isolates down upon it. On the other hand, when we're in a positive state, we tend to see the whole field. Third, the brain reacts very intensely to bad news. For example, if you play two sounds for people, uh, they're equally loud, uh, except one is an unpleasant sound, you know, like a baby crying or, uh, or a fire alarm or a car alarm, sounds like that, versus something pleasant that people like. The brain will activate more to the unpleasant sound. And then in particular, for my purposes here, uh, fourth, the brain takes that whole experience, stimulus and response, and fast-tracks it into emotional memory. Once burned, twice shot. There's a ton of evidence that shows that implicit memory, emotional memory, body memory, procedural learning, how-to learning, et cetera, et cetera, is negatively biased. For example, just think about everyday, everyday life. Ten things happen in an important relationship in your day. Nine are positive, one's negative. What's the one we think about while we're falling asleep? Researchers have found that in long, good couples, long-term good good relationships, there tends to be a a need for at least a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions. As if one negative interaction uh, can overpower five positive ones. Or think about information about other people. We tend to remember negative information about others more than positive information, thus negative ads in political advertising. Or uh, helplessness. It's very easy to train uh, humans and other mammals into a sense of helplessness, futility, entrapment, and defeat. And it takes many times as many counter-experiences of efficacy, of agency, of being able to make something happen to start feeling again like a hammer instead of a nail. That's the negativity bias of the brain, 
or as I kind of summarize it, it's like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. That's the, that's the fundamental source of it. And, and that negativity process happens at all stages of the processing stream. Right? Okay. And in particular, to put it a kind of a way, positive states are continually sheeting through awareness. Research shows that most people um, are generally having neutral to positive experiences with occasional negative ones. So there's a quantity effect for positive experiences. That's why we're not all miserable all the time, right? On the other hand, there's a quality effect, and a potency effect for negative experiences, right? Positive experiences keep washing through the brain uh, like water through a sieve, while negative ones get caught every time. That creates a fundamental bottleneck for growing the inner strengths inside ourselves. That's where I began tonight. How do we grow the good inside ourselves, right? Negative experiences, negative states, are rapidly becoming negative traits to keep us alive. Moments of pain, moments of fear, moments of stress, moments of self-criticism, moments of envy, moments of feeling inadequate, moments of loss, boom, gets turned into neural structure. That kind of neural firing tends to become neural wiring preferentially. On the other hand, meanwhile, Positive experiences, moments of gratitude, loving kindness, concentrated attention, happiness, um, you know, joy at the welfare of others, whoosh, tends to wash through the brain like water through a sieve unless we deliberately help it install in neural structure. Right. So we have a little image here. Um, you know, all the red balls are going in, but the green ones are bouncing off. In effect, we've got this Stone Age brain designed for evolutionary purposes, right? That's in Central Park, and our daughter photoshopped this, but anyway. Um, It's a great way to keep animals alive in the wild, this negativity bias. It's also very useful if someone's in a difficult or horrible situation or growing up in a really tough family environment, okay. But if people are in a reasonably decent setting, and and in particular, they're trying to grow happiness and loving kindness and insight um, and other wholesome qualities of mind and heart, if they're trying to grow that inside themselves, this design feature of the Stone Age brain is in effect a kind of design flaw, a bug in the brain in the 21st century. What can we do about it? Well, we can deliberately use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better. That's what Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA has called self-directed neuroplasticity. How to do that, and that's what I want to focus on next. So any quick questions or comments so far? And then we'll get into kind of the practical implications. You okay so far? A lot of material, zoom, zoom, okay? Okay, good, all right. We're gonna get practical now. So, how do we do it? How do we use conscious attention and deliberate engagement with our own minds to help positive states become positive traits. That's where taking in the good comes in. So as we've seen, just having positive experiences is not enough. You know, I've been a therapist a long time, teacher, parent, and so forth, and one of the really humbling things for me, whoops, from this material, is the recognition that most of the hard-won moments um, that I encouraged or you know, they develop themselves, my clients, my kids, etc. most positive moments are wasted on the brain. 
That's the dirty little secret in psychotherapy, mindfulness training, executive coaching, human resources development, and paths of, of spiritual awakening. Most of our positive moments don't have any lasting value. If they're not turned into neural structure, if there's not some shift of neural structure or function, there's no learning. It was momentarily pleasant, but there's no lasting value. How do we stop wasting our positive states and start turning them increasingly into positive traits? That's what particularly interests me. Okay? So how to actually do that. That's where we learn to take in the good. Right? We pop open the bottleneck, as it were, to help these, these passing states become lasting neural traits. So I'll describe the fundamental how to do this, uh, which comes from the neuropsychology of learning, and then we'll do it a few times and talk about the implications. Okay? Okay, great. So first step, we need to have a good experience. I don't mean good in a moral sense. I mean in a pragmatic sense. An experience that leads to happiness and welfare for ourselves and other people. Usually because we're already having a positive experience. right? Although there's a place for deliberately creating one, such as deliberately calling up compassion or loving kindness for others, or deliberately pulling up a sense of strength. I've done a lot of rock climbing, and um, sometimes when I'm in a situation where I need to access a sense of strength, I'll just bring up almost a body memory of you know, pulling over an overhang or something like that, that sense of determination there. Right? Either way, we have the positive experience. Now we've activated it. How do we install it? That's where the second step of taking the good comes in, where we enrich the experience. Hundreds or more, many, many studies in the neuropsychology of learning have identified five kind of common sense fundamental factors that enrich our experiences and heighten the registration of experiences into neural structure. Those factors are duration. In other words, the longer those neurons are firing, the more they'll be wiring together. Second, intensity. The more intensely we experience something, the more it's going to sink in and stick to our ribs, as it were. Third, multimodality. The more that we take an experience into the body, the, the richer it is emotionally. The more that we enact it, the more likely it is to sink in. Fourth factor of enriching is novelty. The brain is a big novelty detector. So the more that we look at our experience, as it were, through the eyes of a child, or as they say in Buddhism, beginner's mind, Zen mind, you know, or uh, as um, you know, a Zen master said, don't know mind, you know, just a kind of a freshness. The more we look at familiar experiences, such as gratitude or compassion, with fresh with fresh eyes, uh, the more that'll tend to build neural structure. And the fifth factor of enriching is personal relevance, salience. Why does it matter to me, for example, to internalize the felt sense of others caring about me and loving me or valuing me? Why would it help me to um, internalize more of a sense of healthy entitlement, that I have rights in this relationship and it's okay for me to speak up? Why would it help me to really let it sink in that life goes a lot better when I don't drink? How can I help that one really land inside myself? That'll, that recognition of personal relevance will tend to build neural structure. Right? And we can turbocharge the process of converting passing mental states to lasting neural traits through the third step of taking the good, 
which is to sense and intend that the experience is sinking in in order to sensitize, almost turbocharge, memory-making systems. Okay? These are the three fundamental ways to turn a passing mental state into a lasting neural trait. To use the metaphor of a fire in the first step, have it. We light the fire, we get the experience going, typically because it's already present, sometimes because we deliberately create it. In the second step, uh, enriching, we keep the fire going. We protect it, we preserve it, we add fuel to it so it burns more brightly. And then in the third step, absorb it. Ah, we warm ourselves at the fire, right? To really help and turbocharge this process of internalization. Those are the three fundamental steps. And then if we want, the fourth step is the optional one. It's uh, a little more challenging because you're working with negative material. Everything prior to that was purely positive. But in this fourth step, we can use positive to neutralize negative because neurons that fire together wire together. If we hold an awareness both a positive experience, such as feeling cared about, in the foreground of awareness, a prominent big experience, and off to the wings of awareness, as it were, we have something negative in mind. Maybe, ideally, something that the positive experience is a targeted antidote for, such as feeling not so cared about, well then, the positive will gradually associate with, soothe, ease, and potentially even replace the negative experience, particularly with repetition. Now, I did not invent taking in the good. I did not invent this natural process, which is implicit uh, in many paths of practice. Sometimes it's taught a little more explicitly by people. I did not invent this linking step uh, that's inherent in many kinds of therapy. But what I have tried to do is think about this in a very systematic way and apply it to many different kinds of situations in the larger context of evolutionary neuropsychology. But the takeaway point here is that taking in the good is natural. Unfortunately, we don't do it much of the time. We tend to waste many, I think, we tend to waste all kinds of opportunities to let good things land and thereby steepen our learning curve, you know, as time flows this way, right? All this boils down to four words, have it, enjoy it. Especially enjoy it. That's what helps the experience get installed in neural structure, 10, 20, 30 seconds at a time. Or to really boil it down to two words, mo beta. Right? That's the technical term we use. Mo beta. More episodes a day, half a dozen or more in a day. When you really go through you know, the embodied registration of experience, you really help something good land inside yourself. Some good lesson, some good moment, some uh, positive um, recognition of one kind or another. You really let it land. And also, Mobata, inside episodes of you know, letting the good land inside you, inside those episodes, more engagement with it, more intensity, more duration, more protection, more commitment to yourself, more warm-heartedness to yourself, to really be on your own side to help the good really, really sink in. You want to try it? Let's just do it. A little experiential here. So we'll go through it. I'll do this with you two times. All right. And the first time we do it, we'll do it based on an experience that uh, is already happening. And in the second case, we'll call up an experience and I'll see what you think. So I'm going to walk through a couple of slides here. 
This is the summary. By the way, I'm going to post this slide set on my website, and I'm going to talk to Shyla about potentially posting it on the IMSB website as well. Anyway, it'll be accessible to you. Okay? Okay, so you see this, and then you have a little graphic here. See all those green balls going in? Good stuff. Crowding out the red. That's what we want. All right? Not because we're against pain. Not because we're against negative experiences. Nor is it because we're clinging to the positive ones. It's because we're on our own side. And we have a clear-eyed recognition of how life is difficult. We need to grow the good inside ourselves. And we have a clear-eyed recognition of this Stone Age negativity bias. Okay. So as a little practice here, the first time we'll go through it, notice that in this moment, in the background of awareness, is the recognition that you're basically all right right now. And see if you can bring that ongoing recognition that there's enough air to breathe, you know, that your body's basically okay, it's not an agonizing pain, it's not about to die. You're basically all right right now. Your body's continually telling your brain how it's doing. And it's been telling your brain that you're basically all right. You can bring that to the foreground of awareness. And I'll be quiet for about half a minute. Usually when we take in the good, it's a dozen or two dozen seconds. It's not that long. But I'll be quiet for half a minute as you kind of locate the recognition, the felt sense that you're actually basically all right. What a relief. And then really help that sink in. You're giving yourself over <clears throat> to this positive experience of feeling fundamentally all right, right now. Letting needless anxiety or bracing or guarding fall away. No basis for fear. You're actually all right. kind of marinating in a positive experience, protecting it. You're basically all right. Hmm. Let's let that go. Let's try this again. This time, we're going to be deliberately creating a positive experience. In this case, the experience of compassion calling to mind someone that you care about and 
calling also up the experience, the feeling of compassion for this being. Compassion being the wish that a being not suffer, typically combined with uh, feelings of sympathetic or tender concern. Perhaps a friend, could be an animal, could be a group of people. And then once you've activated, once you're having this experience of compassion, see if you can help it sink in by enriching it, helping it last, feeling it in your body, perhaps in the region of your heart. You might strengthen it by putting a hand on your heart or a hand on your cheek. And also absorbing this experience of compassion. Intending and sensing that it's sinking in. Giving yourself over to compassion. Perhaps there's a sense of letting yourself budge a little bit, becoming just a little bit more compassionate as a result of this practice. Okay. Come on back. I took a little time with this, but normally when we take in the good, when we help positive mental states become installed as positive neural traits, most of the time when we do that is informal and on the fly. A dozen seconds here, a couple dozen seconds there, a handful of times every day. Maybe more if we want, right? On the other hand, you can certainly take your time with this and really help things sink in. We can take in the good, as I said, just in the flow of everyday life. And we can also take it in more formally, such as at a meal, a sense of gratitude, maybe on first waking, opening to certain key commitments. Um, I reestablish my fundamental purpose in life when I wake up. Uh, most of the time when I remember to do it and the felt sense of that. Uh, perhaps just before sleep, another good time to really center in a positive state, or at the end of a meditation, or if you teach meditation or you teach kids in school, different, you know, more formal moments, there are opportunities to let things sink in. At the end of a therapy appointment, perhaps, or at the end of a workout or a yoga set or walking the dog or a good conversation with a friend, we can let things really sink in. Okay. As I'll just bounce ahead here is, Lao Tzu, you know, said, basically, if we keep a green bough in our heart, a singing bird will come. Right? We can, uh, through taking in the good, we can install or grow particular strengths inside us, 
you know, particular flowers, as it were, in the garden of the mind. And through taking the good, we get the bonus benefits of what's implicitly present when we deliberately take in the good, such as being on our own side or training in mindfulness. And also research is beginning to suggest that if we repeatedly, deliberately internalize positive experiences in implicit memory, the fundamental technical definition of taking the good, if we do that, we potentially can gradually sensitize the brain to the positive. So much as the brain can become increasingly sensitized to the negative, unfortunately, so it becomes more and more efficient and reactive uh, with regard to turning negative states into negative traits, similarly, it looks like we can gradually sensitize the brain to the positive, so it gets more and more efficient at turning positive experiences into lasting neural structure, the fundamental basis of inner strikes. Okay. Any questions or comments so far? Right there? Oh, sure. Um, <coughs> to enrich an experience, uh, the lots and lots of research on the neuropsychology of learning talks about duration. The longer an experience lasts, the more likely it is to be internalized. Intensity, the more intense it is. Right? Third, multimodality, the more that it's felt in the body or enacted. Fourth factor is novelty. And you don't have to do them all, just one or more. Usually for people, it's duration and feeling it in the body. You know? And the actual experience of this is one in which there's kind of an intimacy in which we come into our own experience and we allow ourselves to sustain an enjoyable experience with a receptivity to it and simultaneously not clinging to the experience. We receive it while letting go of it. Right? That's what it really feels like. So then we have the, third, the fourth and fifth factor of enriching is novelty, and then last, personal relevance. Why would this matter to me? Okay. Maybe another comment or question? Great. Okay, so we have God and three-year-olds, right? Okay, great. That's what it works. So I'll, I'll be quick, you know, with a little thought about that. So um, the really short version about the transcendental uh, for me is there either is one or there isn't, right? If there is, in some way it interacts in some way with the natural world, so I see my own practice as gradually both developing myself and the path of practice that I'm committed to, which is fundamentally a Buddhist practice, which simultaneously, I think, makes me and people in general more accessible to the influence of the transcendental if a person thinks in that, those, that way. I have a lot of respect for people who think that the transcendental is either non-existent or irrelevant to practice, and I want to include that as a possibility. But for myself, um, I in part see my own practice as kind of clearing the dust and cobwebs and crud off the stained glass so the light can shine through more freely. 
And even if there is no light, I'm with Pascal and that wager that the process of clearing off the cobwebs and uh, the dust and so forth has made me less of a jerk uh, with my wife and children. <laughs> and that's worth doing in its own right. right? And then as to three-year-olds, uh, three-year-old amygdala, by the way, the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, and when we talk of them in the singular, there are two of them, they're one on either side, but that said, an amygdala is anatomically matured about the seventh or eighth month in utero. So a fetus can acquire fear learning. The hippocampus, which tends to uh, both inhibit the amygdala and create, uh, put things in context and form personal memories, the hippocampus isn't really anatomically mature till around the third birthday which is a key reason why we don't have personal memories in most cases. We don't remember, we don't have conscious recollection. There might be a body memory, right? But we don't, we don't have imagery about what actually happened. So that three-year-old has a passionate and well-designed amygdala that is, in most cases, oriented around, it's predominantly oriented around reacting to what's unpleasant. It's sort of like, Pleasant, yeah, whatever. Pleasant, yeah, whatever. Unpleasant, wah! You know, that's Mother Nature's plan, right, altogether. The good news, though, and literally this is a paper with a title, I love these titles, The Joyful Amygdala, that some people actually uh, have an amygdala. They're a subgroup. Uh, and the question is, did they train, or what's, what was acquired and what was innate? You know, that's always the question. N nurture or nature, etc. But basically, it appears that some people have an amygdala that... Uh, reacts more intensely to pleasant experiences than to unpleasant. It reacts to unpleasant, it pulls the hand away from the hot stove, um, but it's more oriented around pursuing the positive than averting the negative. And that kind of amygdala is more associated with what's called an approach orientation and other aspects of mental health. So, you know, I think nature and nurture both. You know, they say about parents, I don't know how many kids you have, we have two, but they say parents with just one child, they all they believe in, you know, nurture. Oh, I'm such a wonderful dad, such a wonderful mom. Two kids, oh my God, you start believing in nature again. You know, the power <laughs> of temperament and constitution, these two kids, so different. All that said, you know, the point, though, with children is that we can also help them internalize positive experiences. And I'll use that actually as a segue to kind of wrapping up here, and I want to walk you through some little cute slides I have at the very end. So I'm going to do a chunk of material in about three minutes, and then we'll finish up, and I'll happily stick around. Okay? So, and I, and I have a lot more material about this, and again, freely available, and quite summarized in my latest book, Hardwiring Happiness, right? which you don't need to get you know, to uh, get access to a lot of this stuff. All right, so if you think about that model briefly of avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others, it goes to a fundamental idea, here we go, that um, certain needs need certain resources. If a person is prone to issues of the safety system, or maybe that's what they're currently dealing with, they're feeling anxious or angry or helpless, they need resource experiences that have to do with avoiding harms, right? That's their vitamin C. If you have scurvy, you need C. Iron is good, but it's not your medicine, right? On the other hand, if a person has issues more in the approaching system, in the satisfaction system, they have issues around disappointment or frustration or loss or thwarted goal attainment, failure, 
they need resource experiences, we need resource experiences, more in this territory, right? And then last, if a person's key needs, as mine were uh, as I was growing up, in the attaching system, right? I wasn't traumatized, I wasn't attacked, I didn't have big issues here. I was also able to be reasonably successful in school and otherwise. But I had a lot of experiences of being left out, excluded, rejected, put down, etc. Not horrible, horrible, but they had consequences. For me, I needed to internalize supplies, resources, green balls, you know, in that imagery, right, um, that had to do with the attaching system. One of the most powerful questions I know is, what, if it were more present in your mind, would really help these days? Or in a child who's three, or anybody else, a client, a patient, a student, what, if it were more present, would really help? Right? And if you know what your vitamin C is, if you have some feeling for what you're really encouraging to grow these days inside yourself, then typically everyday life gives you plenty of opportunities to look for that particular experience so that you can have it. And once you have it, right, once it's an activated state, you can take the extra dozen or two dozen or three dozen seconds to really help it sink in, to install it as a fundamental trait. That's a very profound, for me at least, and powerful overarching idea. And in general, you know, as we move to a wrap-up here, we can take the fruit as the path. In other words, if we repeatedly internalize these kinds of experiences, right, we gradually undo the sense of deficit or disturbance that drives the craving that leads to suffering and harm. We can increasingly internalize a felt sense of peace, contentment, and love instead of fear, frustration, and heartache as our basis for going through life. What that calls for, I think of it as 10,000 times, 10 seconds at a time, is a practice in which, in terms of the brainstem, subcortex, and cortex, loosely associated with our fundamental needs to avoid harms, approach rewards, and attach to others, we can engage a fundamental practice in which we, yes, pet the lizard, soothe and calm ourselves, help ourselves feel safer, take care of our safety needs. We can feed the mouse, of course, right? Internalize reward experiences, senses of accomplishment, experiences of gratitude or gladness or pleasure of various kinds, and we can certainly hug the monkey, right? in which we feel cared for, included, connected, seen, liked, appreciated, even cherished and loved. Right? You see the fourth monkey in there? See that? You probably see the fourth monkey, right? The little eyes looking at it, right? Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things I do actually in the morning, particularly when, you know, more often than not, um, when I wake up, kind of reestablish my fundamental purpose in life. And then also, often I'll kind of call up or reaccess, relocate a basic sense of peace, contentment, and love. You know, it's a little bit kind of joking, like football players go the 49ers, but, you know, in the, in the locker room before a game, <laughs> they pound each other. For me, it's like, peace, contentment, love. You know, it's not so insane as that, but it's like recentering. Okay, all right, all right, good to go. All right, center. You know, I'm in the green zone, right, rather than the red zone. 
etc., etc., etc. Or to really go back and quote the Buddha a long, long time ago, the slide that opened us here, as he says, you know, and I would say to you, based on the science of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, never underestimate the power of little things, gradually accumulating, for better or worse, right? Um, as the Buddha says here, think not lightly of good, saying it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. So that's the opportunity. And may you and I and all beings gradually fill themselves with good for our own sake and that of the whole wide world. So thanks for your kindness and attention. Thank you. Take good care. I'll stick around happily. And thanks again to IMSB, Shyla Catherine, and all the volunteers and the whole gathering that pulled this together. You know, great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.